Welcome to Dream Chasers Radio, where we are always daring to be different. Get ready, get ready, get ready to be inspired. Let's get moving toward our goals. And here to make that happen is our host, Yaya Diamond. Well, here we are once again, daring to be different. Here is, this is Yaya, and you're listening to us on 97.5 FM, Real Community Radio, Northport, Florida, as well as on Bombay B Radio in New York City and the Dream Chasers Network. You know, this, this, this show is going to be exclusive. I think that this show warrants that we exclusively present this as a subject that is going to just be covered today only um, on this show and not to be covered only on this network, but today's show. And that is abuse. In any form, abuse is bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's on the high register of evil for me. And so we're going to go ahead and talk to uh, a, I mean, someone who, is, who specializes in this, who has, uh, t- I mean, just completely taken this whole thing, put it in a book, and it's called Too Much Love is Not Enough, a memoir of silence about childhood sexual abuse. I want to welcome to the show uh, Miss uh, Doctor, actually, Rosina Bakari, right? Yep, Rosina Bakari. Thank you. Thank I you did for it. having me. <laughs> I did yes, it. I said the you. name right. <laughs> but thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And not to make light of the situation, I usually torture people's names, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I do the same. So. <laughs> I'm just glad to be here. Just glad to be well, here. I'm, I am so happy you're here. So tell us about this, um, the, the childhood sexual abuse. I don't know anyone. And this is this, I think this says a lot. I don't know anyone that hasn't been affected by this. Yes, that's really sad. I so before we get into all the negative stuff around it, and there's plenty to get into that needs to be explored, let me start by saying, even though we don't know many people, if any of us, especially over the age of 40, who has not, who have not been affected by this, the uh, statistics say that the percentage of childhood sexual abuse is actually on a decline. So that's the good news. That's the best news that we're going to talk about today. <laughs> uh, so, so, so it is. It is on a. It is on a decline. Uh, the interesting thing is that even if it declines, the, according to stats, it's declining over the last ten years. It will. It can't take away the fact that we have close to sixty million adult survivors of childhood sexual oh. abuse. So even if oh no God. child ever gets a right, so even if no child ever gets abused from now on, what are you doing for sixty million just in America adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse? We're in schools, we're teaching, we're making decisions on the um, justice court, we're coaching, we're raising children, we're in relationships, we're everywhere. So how do you have a healthy society? when you have this proportion of people 
dealing with trauma. Wow. That's a big issue. Wow. That is a, to me, not knowing anybody that has ever been, I mean, I mean, personally knowing anybody who has never been affected by this, that to me says a lot. And I, I have to say that me personally, yes, it has affected me too. I, I'm going to have to say it. it has affected me too. And, um, yeah. and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it's it's a scar. It leaves a scar. It leaves the, the kind of scar that makes you believe it's your fault sometimes. Um, Absolutely. It leaves you know, talk about that for me for a second. Is that something that you can elaborate on? Why do victims feel like it's their fault? There's a couple of reasons for that. Thank you for asking that question, too, because I do think it's one of the big issues on a survivor's mind constantly as you try to heal and you move forward and you constantly sort of get jerked back into this sense of self-blame. So one of the, one of the maybe easier ways to, to explain it is that what happened to us as children, and this is the reason that I focus on adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. So mm-hmm. I, I want you to keep a couple of things in mind. I don't deal, I, I don't personally invest in adult victims of rape. Trauma is trauma. So that's so not because I think it's any less important. Trauma is trauma. But the, the, but the big advantage that adult victims of rape have, assuming that they have not been previously sexually abused, which a lot of times that's not the truth, that we are more vulnerable to adult rape if we've had that experience in childhood. But assuming that you've had this sort of normal childhood and you are, are coincidentally victimized in a, as an adult, you know what normal is. You know where you're trying to get back to. So it's a completely different healing process if you've mm-hmm. never been abused as a child, right? So I so not that it's not important and people need to be healed and their issues need to be addressed, and there are resources to do that. What I found was that there were no resources if you tell people, but this happened to me 30 years ago, but I'm still having the effects of it. People look at you like you're crazy, right? Like, get over it. That's not kind of the message. And so part of us trying to get over it is this self-blame. So one of the reasons why that happens, because this happened to us as children, it takes, a, it takes human beings somewhere around 14 years of age to fully develop cognition, their ability to think and process information. And, of course, that continues to evolve evolve as we get older, but it takes 14 years just to have our brain formulate logical ideas. And so when we, the younger that we are when the abuse happens, the less able we are to think logically about what happened to us. And it is mm. about what happened to us. It's not about what we did. It's about what happened to us. So the only narrative that we have is the narrative given to us by the violator or the environment in which we exist. That's the only narrative we have. We don't have the ability to process this on our own. So what happens, oddly enough, when we become adults and we start processing it on our own, we weren't there. So here's the odd thing. We were not there. So now you have this adult mind that understands all these things, and so – because you can see yourself because you're so close to yourself, 
there's the psychological word that we use uh, called salient. And it just basically means whatever, whatever you see the biggest or the most, that's what you pay attention to, right? And so, when, so now we're adults. We have this experience. It is really difficult for us to focus on what the violator did because so many years have passed. The more years have passed, the harder that becomes. But what we always know, like when we think in our, in our minds, we see ourselves. We don't, like we see ourselves, our emotions, our reactions, that sort of stuff. And so we begin analyzing that. We begin analyzing ourselves. We don't begin analyzing the violator because mm. there's too much distance between us and a violator. So because we have the salience with ourselves, then that's what we place blame on. And there's a lot of research that talks that talk about salience and that sort of stuff. So it's a natural phenomenon of being a human being. Whatever you see, you pay attention to, good or bad, you make contributions to that thing just because it's right in front of you. And so we had this adult mind trying to evaluate this child experience. So we evaluate the child as if the child had the same information that we now have. It's a really difficult phenomenon to get through without really having someone to sort of help you through that process and put the big picture back in. Like when I'm talking to survivors, I have to ask them questions like, okay, tell me about that. Like they'll say, but I liked it. Well, what did you like? Well, it was fun. They gave me attention, and we went on trips, and I didn't say no, and da 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 da. And so, uh, and I and I then remind them like, but but in all that you've explained to me, what I didn't hear you say is that you like being violated, you like being touched, you like like all that that you think you like had nothing should have had nothing to do with someone's invasion of your personal space and introducing mm. you to your own sexuality at, at that early of an age. So liking to be loved, touched, feeling affectionate, feeling important, feeling adult, all of those things should to a child without being sexually exploited. Definitely. Wow. So I hope that answered your question. But that's a lot to sort through when you're just using your adult mind to review the experience of a child. It is, it is. I totally agree with you. And and you know what? I mean, I never really realized that the 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 neurons, the you know, the brain hadn't really connected with each other. So as they're learning, their 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 pathways are being, you know, uh built in the brain to learn and process different things and the pathways are connecting, there's a breach in the con in, in, in those connections. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's some things that we know in psychology that children need to grow fully into themselves. One, they need consistency. They need Mm -hmm. predictability. They need spaces where they can risk. And they need to know that that they are going to be taken care of. So they need safety, right? Children need those things in order to thrive. When, when the cost of those things is sexual exploitation, those brain cells develop, they literally develop differently. Because you only, because mm. you prepare yourself for an environment that's not based in normal development. Mm. 
Wow. Wow. And and I just I never I never put two and two together until I had to deal with, you know, the actuality that yeah, I too, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, was, you know, violated at, at eleven right. at at eleven right. years old. And so, you know, I never I I didn't but I guess I'm just a little different than other people because I didn't I didn't blame myself. I said mm-hmm. in my mind that I was young, that he was twisted. <laughs> he right. And right. I Some people do get that. Yeah, and right. I, 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 that's why I really never, I never really thought, why would she blame herself when it's not even her problem, it's his problem or it's her problem. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. now you have this, you know, you have this thing where I think that I'm weird because I didn't take it that way. So is there a such right. thing as people who didn't, you know, like me, who just, you know, really just understood it for what it really was? There is. So a lot of it depends on the route, sort of the route that so, – so there's a few things. So one, it depends on the home environment, period. So, like, I, I have people who uh, who don't have trauma because – Someone tried something with them, for example, and they were like, and they and they were like, I told my mama, or I ran away, or I did this. So, one is that we look at the environment, and that's another another area that survivors often don't do when they're trying to go back and put the pieces of this puzzle together. They only look at themselves. Sometimes they look at the violator, and then lastly they will look at the environment. But usually they overlook what's happening in the environment. So, for example, in my case, uh, even though I had a family that felt like it was normal because it was all that I knew, when I look back and start to unfold, like, oh, right, that shouldn't have, that shouldn't have. So there were all these things that were happening that had nothing to do with sexual abuse, but it laid the groundwork for my silence. And so it depends. So it depends. So what's going on in the environment? Again, is there predictability? Nope, it wasn't in my case, not because people didn't love me, but because there was just a lot of chaos. I, my father wasn't in the house. I was seven years old uh, when, I, when, I first met my, when I first met my dad. I was the youngest of seven. My mother was trying to raise children on her own. So was there predictability? Uh, not really. Did I have a sense of the, that I knew exactly where to go if something happened to me? Uh, not really, because there was always some other stuff going on that it, it never felt like the focus was on me. They would probably uh, argue that differently, that because I was a baby, I was always a concern. That, and that's probably true, too. You know, So it's always this uh-huh. complexity. And so I didn't feel like I had like I had the voice to say. So one, it depends on the environment and the groundwork that's laid. And then, of course, it depends on things like how much older, what's, what's the age gap between the victim and the violator? What's the, what's the relationship between the victim and the violator? So there are all these things that, that play a part in how the survivor survives, right? Um, what's, what's the sense of guilt or responsibility? What are their coping mechanisms that sort of stuff. And so we know, for example, the more intimate, the more um, blood-related or intimate the relationship between the survivor and the victim, the more trauma there is. So someone who's violated by a parent 
is likely to have more trauma than someone who's violated by a, a, a cousin or someone who visits once a year, that sort of stuff. So, uh, so, so there are all kind, all kind of things that contribute to the response that the survivor has. Mm. Mm. So getting, getting, getting back to like the sexual abuse itself, you know, uh-huh. I, I understand you're talking about the silence of it all. Why so taboo? Why? I think um, there's so much shame. I think there's shame not just in the survivor, but I think there's shame in the family. So it's such a mess. And so when you look at, again, in a healthy family, if there's really a healthy family and something happens, people deal with what happened. They don't leave a big old fat elephant in the room for people to walk around. That's what a healthy family does. They have the communication Mm -hmm. skills and the resources to address whatever comes up. So it's unlikely that sexual abuse is going to happen in a healthy family. Again, if somebody Mm -hmm. tries violation, they may try it, but that person is going to be dealt with. I do know survivors who have had family members go to jail because when the the right person found out, they acted on it. They didn't say, oh, they didn't make moves to to quiet it. So one of the Mm -hmm. things, again, this is what often when I'm dealing with survivors, uh, trying to help them sort through, I have to get to the question of why did this continue? So if it happened once, what is it that was in that environment that gave you the message directly or indirectly that it wasn't okay to tell, that you couldn't talk, that you had nobody to go to? So there, the environment is, is, I assure you, there is already some dysfunction in an environment where children are sexually abused. There is already some dysfunction in that environment. And so because there's already dysfunction in there, then people tend not to have the skills, the confidence, or the resources to deal with the issue. One of the things that, 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 that makes this a feminist issue is the fact that if you, if you consistently, constantly as a pattern, a cultural innuendo, don't have women who can earn a living for themselves, it lays the groundwork for grooming and sexual abuse. When you have seven children in a house and a husband and father decides to violate the children, where are you going to go? Who you, can you mm-hmm. afford to leave? Who's going to take care of you? So there's a lot that plays into the silence and why it exists and why we continue to perpetuate it. Uh, so there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot that has to go into fixing or addressing this issue. It's not quite mm-hmm. as simple as just saying stop abusing. We have to stop. We have to stop the vulnerability of abuse, right? We have to make sure that women understand the vulnerability of not working. Not that we shouldn't do that. We should have that right to stay at home, but we have to understand whatever vulnerabilities come come with the choices that we make. Right. Right. Now I do. I do have a big question, and, and, and you know what? I don't know. I, I just, yeah, I guess, I, I guess that's just me. Is, 
is abuse on the abuser's side a disease, an addiction, something like a cigarette or or a drug? Uh, that is a big question, and there could be a lot of answers to that. But I, I th- so I'm going to make a couple of distinctions again. For example, what we find is that children, when children sexually abuse children, often they do not grow up to be to be violators. It's one of the myths. So if a if a 13 year old boy sexually assaults a 12 year old girl. It could be a lot of reasons. It could be that there are some other issues, dysfunction, anger, mental illness, something else. But there, but reform is possible when children, because, again, that person hasn't fully developed their skills either. And there's some of that that, go, that goes on. That's not the majority of what happens with abuse. The average age in which children um, are initiated into uh, sexual abuse is age eight depending on which that you look at, age eight. And oftentimes it's someone who has uh, more than five years uh, experience on them, life experience. So someone who's age eight, another person is at least 15, 20, old enough to know better. So that's the stereotypical case. Oftentimes I think uh, any kind of sexual violation, whether it, it happens in adulthood or childhood, I think it in a very warped sense, has to do with power. And mm. I have another. I have another book called Gene Pooling, and we'll get really off track if we start talking about that. But it has to do with the evolution of sexual abuse in the world, and how how women and girls have been have been targeted for abuse from an evolutionary sense because they literally control the gene pool, and so. Mm there's some stuff that happens uh, in different cultures. So as well as our culture about violation of females. So I think there's a a much bigger picture that has to do with, for example, the sex slave trade. Why do we get girls so young in a sex slave trade? If you're going to have a sex slave trade, why wouldn't you get adults? No, they don't get adults. They get, you know, six-year-olds and, and eight-year-olds and that sort of stuff. Why do female genital uh, mutilation take place when girls are four years old? That sort of, So there's a real ugly psyche in humanity regarding oh. female bodily autonomy and our, that, that, that goes into our rights and choices of reproduction, that all is enmeshed in the whole big realm of sexual abuse. So childhood sexual abuse is just part of of humanity's dysfunction and how we've grown out of an evolution of trying to control the reproduction of women in the world for 100,000 years. So I think it's all connected, and that's Mm. a big picture thing. So I think it has more to do with power and control. I mean, how is a a six-year-old going to give you Sexual, sexual pleasure. Like, that's not about sexual pleasure at all. Not at all. No. And, and, the no. Men who, and the men who violate are not men who can't get sex without violation. They're not. So it's not at all about the sex. It's about the power. And I think for many, for many, taking that power away when it's that young, um, before people have a chance, is 
is the high for them. That sucks. That's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. Because there's a knowing that that it's like it's like marking territory, right? Because no matter what happens to that child, you will know. The number of women that I meet, survivors who have had who have been introduced to their sexuality by way of violation, like that, is crazy. It's crazy, and people and and the violators tend to know that they know exactly what they're doing. That's part, I believe, that's part of the thrill. It's not the, it's not necessarily the the sexual satisfaction. It's the satisfaction of knowing that you have tainted that human being, that person's right to choose reproduction. What happens with their whole idea of reproduction in the world, no matter what happens after that, that you have marked that territory. Mm. And it's pretty mm. sick. You know, and I find what's even sicker is most of the, well, at least I think, most of the time it's so easy just to be able to manipulate someone you already know if you are an adult, you know, if you're a lesser. Uh, and and having that child or that you know young person uh, have that trust already established with you is just easier. So it could be Absolutely. someone you know. Absolutely, it's not. I I should state this because not make the assumption everybody knows this. So uh, well over eighty, somewhere between eighty and ninety percent of childhood sexual abuse occurs by someone who is related to us that we know whether that be by marriage or adoption or blood. So almost always it's somebody that you know. That's one of the flaws that we've had for the longest time, and we still speak about it in terms of a stranger, but not to the degree that we used to. But most of our prevention programs gear children up to tell if a stranger does something to them, knowing that it's not going to be a stranger not going to be a, the likely the likelihood of it being a stranger is much less but the conversations we're not having or not yet willing to have with our children is even if daddy comes in your room even if i come in your room as mama and tell you to do something that's uncomfortable then this is what you should do but we mm-hmm. ignore it we ignore it i oh if the stories that I hear that I'm constantly told about the fact that, that uh, even when survivors do tell, nothing is done. Nothing is done. People continue this. Nothing is done in childhood. So only 15% of children who are victimized actually get help. 15%. 15%. The rest of us go into adulthood without anybody ever saying as much as I'm sorry that this happened to you. Yes. You and know, so we try to normalize it. Oh, it's not normal. <laughs> no. And we have to stop pretending like it's normal. We have to stop telling people it's normal. We have to stop saying, oh, girl, that's just Uncle Jimmy. He touched everybody. No, that's not okay. Uncle Jimmy should go to jail. I mean, like, yeah, pretty much. Like we, 
Right. When I I would have these these talks in these large groups, and I would ask people, how many of you know who the child molester is in your family? And most people would raise their hand. Like, why? Why do we allow this to exist? No. So there, so we have a long, long way to go in breaking silence. A long way okay. to go. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, my gosh. You know, I, I hate to keep you a little longer, but I am. I'm gonna keep you just, just a couple minutes longer. You know, when a I am in no you, hurry, so I love it. <laughs> when you see this happening as a person that's in the family and you see this happening, what should be the next step? You know, I think the reason that they don't go and they don't say anything is because of the fear of of diminishing the person in the eyes of other family members. So uh, one of the things that I, that I say to people to try and get them to realize, I said every rapist is loved by someone. Every rapist is loved by someone. So if your morality, emotion, that's not morality at all. That's not morality. So you have to put on your grown-up pants and, and save children or take responsibility to what happens when children are not taken care of. So we all have a responsibility to do what's right. So we constantly have an opportunity to choose righteousness, and instead we choose denial. And so what does that say about us as human beings? Somebody has to own this, right? Yeah. So somebody has to own it. Somebody has has to be willing it's only going to be moral when it's convenient. That's not morality at all. Right. You're right. So what should they do? How should they go about reporting it? What, 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 what is it? They should, they, I, I mean, you know, how do they do it? Most people just don't know what to do. So they know what to do. They don't, what they don't know is how to deal with the consequences. They know what to do. They just don't know what to do with the consequences. So for the people that I know who have dealt with this in the right way, the bottom line is that someone goes to jail. Like, I don't know how you, so you want to, so like you want to, so you can't protect a child and a violator at the same time. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if someone is violating children, they have to, they have have to have legal consequences for that. Right. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, then, then someone has been remiss in their responsibilities. If your first reaction is to cover it up, you're not thinking about a child. You're thinking about yourself. Mm-hmm. So, and what we keep saying, trying to convince ourselves, is that children come first. Right? Children, and this, so when I said children need a sense of safety and protection, when a child knows that you will not protect them, that's mm. not going to be healthy development with that child. Mm-hmm. When a child knows that you will not protect them, something happens to their brain. They then, their brain then has to develop based on a sense of survival, not love. Mm. It's a whole, it becomes a whole different brain, literally. Because mm. children will That's figure amazing. that out pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah. Wow. So right, somebody's got to go to jail. Right. right. To, me, to me, you know, 
I had an acute, I, I did have an issue when I was 11, like I said before. And I believe that my mom wanted to kill him because all I heard was her name being screamed and the person running mm-hmm. and things being talked. And then the next thing I know, we we moved. Right. Okay. So and, which means that somebody wanted you to be protected. Okay. So right. That's what I mean. Like that's normal. Like that's a that, like that. Those are signs of a normal, healthy family. That's mm-hmm. what that sounds like to me. Because you can't stop. We may not be able to stop violators, but what we can do is respond to violation in the way that honors the child. I will tell yeah. you that is not what happens in most cases. In most cases, that is not what happens. Well, that's what happened with me. We moved to a different state, <laughs> which is I, that was and the, I know someone. Okay. I I know someone else who had to do that. Yeah, but yep. thousands of miles away. Thousands of yep. miles away. Because um, nothing and, is more important than protecting children. Exactly, exactly. And I, I actually got over it really fast. It was like, you know, this is, that's not normal. Mom's going to kill him. <laughs> Which is beautiful. So, okay, so that's the difference. So look, so now you're not growing up traumatized trying to figure out right. who loves you, what your significance in the world. Because you're like, somebody protected me. Like, I know I'm right. good because someone protected me. That's not That's the right. experience of most survivors. No, mom was gonna, if, if he would have gotten caught, he would have been dead. Right. But whether he, yes. whether she even, right. So, but minimally, she made sure that you were safe and never again. So even as many right. of us, as you will read, uh, not not sure how far you got through the book, but as you will read, so even when we try and filter through all this and try and relay our experiences years later as we unfold it for ourselves and go back into the family and say, hey, this is what happened, and I'm struggling, and blah, blah, blah. The hardest part for adult survivors, one of the major challenges is that even as adults, if they didn't protect us as children, they darn sure aren't willing to protect us as adults. And one of the hardest things is having to go no contact with our families because no one in the family will tell the violator that they can no longer share space with us. Mm. So as opposed to someone saying, you know what, even if that was 20 years ago, it happened, this person is traumatized, they're coming to the wedding, you can't come. No one will. Mm. It's it's rare that we hear those words. What we hear is, well, if you don't want, if you can't come and be with the family, then just don't come because we're all going to be there. Like how messed up is that? How messed up is it? that you expect a violator and a victim to share the same. No other crime right. does that. Yeah, well, that will never happen in my house. Right. Well, that will never happen in my house <laughs> and I many, many, many other houses. Yeah. And no. that's the difference between, between trauma and being okay. Yeah. That's what a trauma I, occurs. I, my gosh. That's just, I, I think, you know, Again, I probably would follow the route my mom took and try to kill him. <laughs> right. Beat right. him up, knock him inside the head, you know. Um, yeah, because, I mean, you know, to me that's just, to me the normal is what my mother did. Get me out of there. Right. Get that, that is normal. out of there. Yeah. That is normal. Yeah. That is normal. Yeah. That is normal. Yeah. Wow. 
Unfortunately, that's normal, but not typical, unfortunately. Right, and that's probably why I don't have that trauma. I don't have that guilt. I knew it wasn't I knew it wasn't me. I was just a kid, you know. You know, right. so I knew that. Right. Wow. Right. Wow. But when, but when the so, child isn't protected, we have to come up with some other excuse, right? Well, if nobody protected me, then it must be something wrong with me. I must be insignificant, right. not important. So you have to come up with some other excuse as to why people didn't protect you. Wow. I never thought about it like that. Because right. we're adults it. now. We're trying to rationalize. We're not thinking mm-hmm. from the child's position. We're now adults trying to rationalize what happened. Right. Well, well, I mean, I guess I'm on the better end of the stick where there is no really rationalization on it. It's his fault. Right. Exactly. And somebody yes, let me know that it was... Exactly. Someone took right. my side. Someone took my side. The one that one right. of the hardest statements um, that that survivors often make or feel uh, is this sense of being uh, chosen. Like most people say, like we just wanted to be chosen. Like I just wanted to be chosen over a violator. I just wanted to know mm-hmm. that I was more important. My presence in a family was more important than a violator. And when right. you and when you wake up every day and have to ponder that in your head that someone loved me less than they loved the violator, mm-hmm. like that's a hard knot. Like that's a hard yeah. knot in your chest. Mm. Wow. So at the sound of your voice, people listening and they know this is going on, what is the next step for them? I think especially if you haven't if you haven't um, dealt with the one, can I plug the book and say that one oh, of the yes. reasons why I think one of the reasons why I wrote too much love is not enough is because I wanted people to see what pain feels like when you when it's not visible on the outside. Uh, I was lucky in that in spite of my trauma, I didn't end up the places that many survivors end up. I didn't end up in prison. I didn't end up addicted to drugs. I didn't end up in abusive relationships. And so and so I did some things differently. I'm not sure why or how or by the grace of God, whatever, but but I ended up here able to assist in a way that I never planned to be possible. So here I am mm-hmm. able to write and say to people like what you did and how you survived was normal and this is and this is just an example of how it could of that even when it looks different it feels the same my pain mm. feels the same and mm-hmm. this is what it feels like so the whole book is trying to get this description of what it feels like to live with pain no matter how hard you Try to re- try to be in denial of what that pain is about. So mm. I so I think uh, reading the book will will give people permission to deal with the pain. Yeah, like they can finally take the bandaid off and let it breathe. The healing process has to start somewhere. So yes. uh, I'm hoping that it will relieve people's shame and give them voice to talk about stuff that they don't want to talk about 
you know, their mm-hmm. willingness to be in a room with uh, violators. And no one, one of the big uh, issues to me that I try to bring out in the book was this idea of buying gifts for people who violated me. Like I think about, about that now and I normalized it. Everything becomes normalized. And now like, how do you go buy Christmas gifts for violators? Like that's insane. Right. That's insane. But that is, but that's a common experience for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. The things we do to try to remain some what looks like normalcy in our lives is they're not normal at all. So I want to give people permission to unpack that stuff that we try to make normal in our lives that scars us so deeply still. So. Mm-hmm. I invite wow. people to, to do that. Yeah, and then try not to journey alone. alone. My, my organization is called TalkingTreesSurvivors.com. Uh, so if people can plug in there, they can plug into some other resources where they can join us on this healing journey. I, um, I facilitate an online uh, support group that really tries to build on the resilience of people. We do not come there and whine about what happened to us. We come there to build on the resilience that we've lived with already for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so mm-hmm. you know, so, so everyone who comes there know that they are not journeying, journeying alone. So those mm-hmm. are the two things that I recommend. Start reading, start getting active and involved. It's it's difficult to take on an identity as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse when you've done all these things to try to be in denial of it. And so you have to lean into the identity of it just to find a space where you can unpack the stuff. You don't have to stay there, but you got to find a safe place to unpack it and then look at it. And then you can, you get to decide what to do with it. You get to decide, Oh, I'm really okay because I had this support. And I didn't, and I don't have this piece of it. What are the pieces that I have? So, but if you've spent your years denying any of it, then you got to figure out what parts you really need to go back and deal with. Yeah, yeah. Now, for you know, I mean, you know, like the kids nowadays, most kids have cell phones, you know, and and they say get a password. Is there something that they could do in conjunction with a password and a cell phone um, with their parents or calling someone and kind of giving a a keyword? You know, I know that they say if if someone's um, in your home or whatever or they they got you and just pretend like you're ordering pizza, if you can get your phone um, and call 911. I mean, so, I mean, there is. Uh, is there something that they can do in conjunction with the cell phone and a code word um, to help people know what's really going on? Unfortunately, those tactics only work with strangers or people that the children don't like to be around. So what happens often is that violators are very good at violating. Violators don't have one victim. Violators have dozens and dozens of victims. They have crafted this. And so they watch. So they watch for vulnerability. So they watch and see what child spends the most time alone. They watch and see what child doesn't have a lot of self-confidence. They watch and see what child lacks communication skills 
what child lacks credibility that even if they told, no one would tell because they, because they know this child does drugs or they know this child's um, um, taking care of their family. So they watch for the vulnerability. It's not random. If it's random, the violator will walk away. If they, if, <clears throat> you know, if they try something random and they see it's not working, they'll go, they'll pick the easier child. And so, so limiting the vulnerabilities of children is what's most important. Limiting the vulnerabilities of children by creating healthy environments for them. That's what child prevention is about. If you're yelling at your child all the time and your child doesn't trust you, then why are they going to trust you when, if you're already yelling at them and somebody touches them or whatever, there's something that's going to be, I can't tell because I'm just going to get yelled at some more. If you're right. spanking on your child, <laughs> they're not going to risk you spanking them some more because something bad happens to them. If you've given them the idea that they have to be good children, they get that what's happening to them is bad, they're not likely to come to you. So it's about maintaining an authentic, safe, predictable relationship with your child so that if something happens, they will come to you. And unfortunately, that is often not the case, and that's what presents the biggest vulnerability to the child. You can't protect your child from violators if you haven't protected your child from yourself. Your mood swings, your inconsistency, you're not being there. You, you're dating too much to worry about to see what's going on in their lives. So it's about really being active in your children's lives and, and, your, and making sure that you're really putting your children first. Because here's the thing, if you don't, to whatever degree you do not put your children first, somebody else will. Yep. Because children want to be first. Oh, yeah. Wow. So it's not about giving. So, here, so here's one of the ways that we set children up for abuse inadvertently. We don't mean to. But the more that we preach and teach children about sexual abuse prevention, what we're really saying is to the child is that that child has a responsibility to prevent themselves from being sexually abused. Like that's mm-hmm. what we're saying. Like when we keep telling women, well, don't do this and don't do that. So then when it happens, it's the woman's fault. We start asking questions like, well, what did you wear and how much did you drink? Because we've told you that those things make you vulnerable, right? Like that's insane. And so we do the same thing with children. We say, well, don't let them in a house and don't do this and don't do that. Because as soon as a violator catches them off guard and a child slips, then what a child, depending on the age of that child, then it's like, oh, I messed up because I was told what I should have done to prevent myself from having this experience. I messed up. So if you are, so if children are in an environment where messing up, gets them punished or spanked or beat or cursed out, they're not coming to you. You think you're parenting well, you're not, because your child's not coming to you because, one, you've given them a responsibility to protect themselves instead of you making sure that your child rearing was the protective measure. You've now given that responsibility to a child. Mm. Mm. Well, this is very, I mean, overwhelmingly 
educational. Uh, for anyone Thank that's listening that. today, where can they find you? Talking Trees Survivors, the plural on trees and survivors, TalkingTreesSurvivors.com. And that's if they have any issues or questions related to sexual abuse. But as an author, my author page is just RosinaBakari.com, R-O-S-E-N-N-A, Bakari, B-A-K-A-R-I, RosinaBakari.com. Okay. This is amazing. I'm sure there's more that we just did not get an opportunity to touch on today. And uh, Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, and I wish that everybody, you know, if it, if it, it had come down to what you're talking about being being a normalcy in in an abnormal situation, um, or being an abnormalcy and then becoming a normal situation, like in my case, I would rather it right. be like me. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. 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 Because people are resilient, but people are only resilient when they're in resilient environments. Right. People aren't just naturally resilient. I mean, an environment can knock out all the resilience of people. So we can't rely on children being resilient. We as adults have to be responsible for creating and and maintaining a resilient environment. Predictability, consistency, safety net, and knowing that you're important. Those components have to be in all child rearing environments. Right. Wow. Wow. Well, I want to thank you, Ms. McCarty, for being on the show today. I mean, I have learned so much, and not only about how well my situation went, you know, and how privileged I really yeah. am to have had right. it go that. And, and yeah, I, tell I just, your mama, I said thank you. I say thank you all the time to her, and I did find my I did find my um uh the, the gentleman or the guy or whatever you want to call him, uh and he was he was he was he was doing it still. So. He recently passed away, um right. but he was still yeah. doing it. So you know what I did? Right. I called I called the police station where I found his uh, his mugshot, and I told him if you guys take him to court, call me. I'll come in and testify. That's awesome. That's just, I love to hear, I love to hear stories like that. I love to hear it because there are people who do the right thing and we, and, and we need them to keep waving the flag and, and giving their voice to say there's life after reporting. <laughs> like there's life yeah. after that. It may be difficult. You may have to move thousands of miles away, but the benefit, the payoff of not passing this crap down is so much more important than any life you think you're going to have with this person. Definitely, definitely. And I want to say to all those who have gone through this situation, it is not your fault. Even though you may think it may be, Mm-mm. it's not. It isn't your fault. No. It's the sick mind that took advantage of a very uh, opportunist situation. And, um, yeah. And, and, young, you know, and, and being vulnerable. It's just it's just an opportunist dream. And um definitely not your fault. You're you're not at fault. So if you're listening to us at the sound of our voice, 
go ahead and, and call doctor here and, and uh, Bacardi and get with her or get with someone, a counselor or, you know, um, just someone. Someone you, you know. Right. Just someone that you can unpack confide it. in. Yeah, yeah that, that's on your side. <laughs> yeah, start doing that. I think that's going to help a lot. Because I don't have any guilt in it. I mean, seriously, I, I mean, you know, most people will say, well, don't you hate him? No, I actually pity him. When he was alive, mm-hmm. I really did because that, to live and be that way, how could you? Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, that's to yeah. me, that's the illness. You know, it's a sickness. And uh, yes. definitely not my fault. So I, I just want to, you know, let them know that that's not their fault. And and it's it's something to start with, you know. Yeah. Thank Dr. you so much. Thank you for being on the show. We took the whole hour, but that's okay because <laughs> I think this is a very very big subject. And and like you said, like I said before, it is a lot of it is taboo. A lot of people just go through life thinking that this is normal, and it really isn't. It's not. And we can do something about it. This is a problem we can actually solve. Yes, yes, definitely. But, doctor, thank you again so much for being on the show. You have to come back on again. I'm sure we're going to get I would love to. to. We'll get some requests to have you back on. And uh, my yes. goodness, if you guys definitely tell everybody where they can reach you one more time, please. RosinaBakari.com, R-O-S-E-N-N-A, RosinaBakari.com. And you'll wow. be able to get and to talking you to you as well. Thank oh, you. Wow. I appreciate the platform. I, wow, what a wonderful show today. What a wonderful show. Wow, and I want to thank you guys for listening and paying attention today. And if you know anyone that's going through this situation or you suspect anyone that's going through this situation, please don't keep it under wraps. It is not taboo. It is something that needs to come out. And as you you heard the doctor today, that they don't just have one person, but they have more than one people. Multiple people are getting hurt at the same time, and we want to stop that cycle. So please report, report, report. Thank you again for tuning in to Dream Chasers Radio today. This has been a wonderful edition, and Dr. Bacardi has been awesome. So this is going to be the end of the show, only because, guess what? This is a subject that needs to be uh, put out there by itself. It is not your fault. All right, good night, everybody. And good night, doctor. Good night. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Mm-hmm.